right, well, welcome to another episode of Theology Doesn't Suck, where hopefully theology doesn't suck. Uh, if you can't recognize me uh, today, this is Josh speaking. My voice is a little weird. Just got back from retreat with my students. I'm not going through puberty popular to what, you know, contrary to what Marty is going to tell you. So uh, speaking of Marty, he is my co-host and he is with me today. How's it going, man? It's going pretty well. How are you, man? I'm good. You, mean you see sound, you sound like you're going through puberty, but it also, I mean, if people saw you and heard your voice, you would not be able to convince them that you're not going through puberty. So <laughs> <laughs> just thought that's, I'd say that. That's probably fair. That's probably completely <laughs> fair. Like, I'm not even going to be mad at that. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, like when I was on this retreat, you know, we get there and um, like I had my uh, other leaders with me and they're like older dudes. And so, you know, the people that run the retreat center automatically assumed one of them was the dudes in charge. And so uh, they're like, oh, no, th- that's the guy over there. They're like, really? That high school student? Like, <laughs> you let him be in charge? <laughs> So I, I, I'm used to it. I'm used yeah. to it. Yeah. I'm used to it. So, dude, Marty, I noticed, though, that I'm the only one here wearing headphones that are big and ridiculous. Normally, you <laughs> wear them as well. So, yeah. like, are you going headphoneless today? You got your AirPod game? You becoming a Visco <laughs> girl? What's going on? <laughs> no, I'm uh, uh, so I took my big headphones home over the, over the last week to do some things with them. And so just not thinking about it today, I... I'm not wearing. I have only headphones I had with me today are my like fancy in-ear monitors that I wear on Sundays at church and when I play gigs and tour and stuff. So, yeah. So you go really hard, is what you're saying? I do. Yeah, they've got like if they're like clear and they're custom molded to my ear, but then they I don't know if you can see this. They have like like <laughs> like koa wood like inlaid on the outside of them. So in case, you know, people are like, Hey, what's that in Marty's ear? Oh, he's got a piece of wood in his ear. <laughs> like, you know, so it looks really nice instead of, it was kind of like an earring, I guess, except inside the ear instead of hanging on the outside. Yeah. That's cute. I remember when you molded those things, dude, like, yeah, it was, I'm pretty sure it was in your office at, at the church we used to work at. Right. Like, no, so I, you have to go to like an audiologist. Like you actually oh, have to yeah, go. Yeah. Yeah. To okay. Person. And then they Maybe. take this crazy stuff. They take this like red, like almost kind of like dental floss material and they like use a really small uh, like thing and they like push this dental floss like way down into your ear. Very scientific. And then, it's, like, and then it's hanging out. It might not be dental floss. It didn't smell like mint <laughs> or anything like that. So. Um, but then they take this like blue goop and they like – like use like a plastic like massive syringe and like shoot it into your ear and like push it all down in there and they do both sides at the same time and so when they do that literally you can hear nothing at all like it's like as soon as the foam expands and dries they can hear you can hear nothing and then they pull it out with the the floss and they've got this little like like cast of the inside of your ear so then that's what you you showed me yeah yeah yeah. i saw that so then you you send that then to the company that makes those and then they like 3d laser, uh, scan those. And then that's how they make these. And, uh, I remember when she did my left side, the audiologist, she actually messed up. Like it didn't like it, like she didn't get the goop far enough in. So she had to do it again. <laughs> so it was kind of like really awkward feeling. And then your ears, I was like, Oh, I wonder if my ears are really dirty. She's like, no, these are like the cleanest ears I've ever seen. Good job. I was like, what? You're so you get me? you get a ten star rating on hygiene. 
I guess so. I mean, I guess I clean my ears well, if that's a thing. That's How's good. that for banter? You should. About cleaning <laughs> it's disgusting, but also, like, you should put that on your resume. Like, my yeah, so ears are the cleanest. Quote her. Quote the audiologist. <laughs> yeah, so, good. like, if anyone out there if anyone out there needs tips on keeping your ears clean, I guess I'm the guy to talk to. I don't know what I do, but, you know, give me a call. I'll figure it out. Nice. I appreciate I could that. sell it. I could sell, like, a like a like some sort of, like... You know they have those like stupid on on um, Facebook or whatever like it's like an, an ad like a sponsored thing and it's like you know ten tips to blah 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 I could do like ten tips to keeping your ears clean in case you need custom mold in your monitors nice <laughs> or and you then, want to impress the audiologist lady <laughs> <laughs> and then you can you can give it away free to all of our patrons. Yeah. Yeah, because we have that now. Kind of cool. But they have to become patrons, though. Yeah. Step one, become a patron. That might be like the highest tier, though, level. Oh, I mean, man. that's pretty okay. prime information. Prime information. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe perhaps we should move on because we do have another person here with us today. <laughs> and he's just laughing at us. Like, I can't believe I'm going to talk to these idiots. That's the uh, most terrifying <laughs> intro I've ever been a part of. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the voice of Shane J. Wood, uh, who, correct me if I'm wrong, Shane, but you are the professor of New Testament and the associate academic dean at Ozark Christian College. That's exactly right, here in Joplin, Missouri. Nice, nice, nice. And also, so in Joplin, Missouri, were you like affected by the tornado? Oh, yeah. Five or six years ago, personally? Yeah, it was uh, it was about seven blocks away from our house or so. But, yeah, about one-third of the city was wiped out. So, Mike, yeah. all the places where my wife and I, you know, went when we were dating in the middle of the city, totally gone. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was – I mean, I, I'm sorry, I, I laughed, but I wasn't yeah. laughing at the moment. Sure. It's, yeah, I've, yeah. Been, I've been living here for eight years helping with the cleanup, and at this point, it's it's more of a uh, – it's more beauty scars at this point than it is even like a terrifying thing. So sure. Yeah, but then but then you run the risk of like every year another tornado just coming through and – Oh, yeah. That came again, so. Hey, man, I, this is Tornado Alley. We're used <laughs> to that reality. It's just, you know, one-third of the city wiped out. That, that was a little unique. That was <laughs> bigger <laughs> of a deal. Yeah. <laughs> A little bit different. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot. Marty and I used to have to deal with all the hurricanes when we were in South Florida, but we yeah, have since okay. moved on from there. Uh, yeah. You we, remember? We, both, we both evacuated for Hurricane Irma. Yeah, Irma. Uh, Josh and his wife went much farther than my wife and my, my family <laughs> did, um, but, but we, we all evacuated, so it was crazy. Hey, I found a free place to stay. My friend hooked me up, and it just happened to be in Tennessee. <laughs> So from, from it like was right over the border of Georgia, okay? Come on. Essentially Fort Lauderdale to, like, Tennessee. This was like <laughs> the longest journey ever. It was a nice vacation. It was a nice vacation. For Come sure. On. For sure. For sure. Until we were forced to return early and whatever. We don't need to talk about that. That'll derail us. That'll derail yeah. us. That's bonus content. All right. Well, um, <laughs> anyway, Shane, thank you so much for uh, taking your time to, to hang out with us. Thank you for being flexible for you listeners. Shane's been super awesome. We had to do a little tweak to our time for the, the interview, and he was super flexible and helpful with us for that. So uh, thanks again, Shane. Yeah. And um, just to, to kind of get us started, <clears throat> can you just kind of tell us you know, about yourself? Who are you? What do you do? Like that kind of stuff. What's your family like? Yeah, been married for almost 17 years, have awesome. four kiddos ranging from 
15 down to six. So one's learning how to drive and one's learning how to read. So it keeps <laughs> us, it keeps us pretty busy. Marty's uh, still ben, learning how to read too. <laughs> yeah. I got a seminary degree somehow. So audio you, books. Yeah, audio I was going to say, you must have got the audio book I recorded, right? That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, no, I've been here at Ozark for 10 years and uh, love love where I'm at, man. We I'm at a school that we only train people for ministry. That's all we do. And I've nice. uh, been doing that for almost 10 years and getting getting to be, you know, just in my sweet, my sweet spot, not just teaching, but also getting to love on college students and help them kind of process who they are and, and what God's doing in them. So, yeah. Sweet. That's awesome. And so you also, uh, you have a PhD from the University of Edinburgh. Did I say that right? No, but that's okay. <laughs> Dang it. How do you say it? I was asking my wife earlier and she was like, I have no idea. <laughs> it's, it's actually, it took me, that was, that's the first year of study is you oh, have to okay. how okay. to say it. <laughs> okay. Got it. Got it. It's got in it. between, it literally is in between Edinburgh and Edinburgh. Okay. It's in between. So it's like an Edinburgh. Got it. Edinburgh. All right. <laughs> yeah. You just kind of slur the end of it and then it's right. Got it. All right. Got it. Got it. That's nice. awesome. Sweet. And yeah. that, where is it? That's in the, is that in the UK, right? Yeah, that's in Scotland. So yeah, we got to, had to move my whole family over there for about six months and then, uh, then finished it long distance for, for the next couple of years. So sweet. Awesome. Wow. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah, we had a blast. Yeah, that's cool. Mar- so you guys are both way smarter than me. That's awesome. Marty always likes to flaunt <laughs> that he has a seminary degree and I don't. I like to sometimes make the Skype the Skype video so it has the, <laughs> the you can say you can see it over there on the wall. <laughs> I always and tell that, people I'm like, who's the smart one? I just paid thousands of dollars for a piece of paper correct, and you did correct. it, so well done. <laughs> and I'll be paying for that until I'm 150. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my second mortgage at this point. That's right. hey, your debt will go with you onto new creation. It'll be beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, Maybe that's. Maybe that's purgatory. <laughs> you got to finish paying off your student debt. God knew. I mean, in his providence, he knew. Goodness. All right. Well, that's almost. <laughs> oh, man, I don't even know how to respond. Anyway. Um, <laughs> don't do it, Josh. That's, that's how to respond. That's good. That's good. All right. So also, Shane, real quick, before we, we jump into to the real reason we want to talk to you today, we do have a question that we ask mm-hmm. everybody who comes on the show. It's super important. Uh, It means a lot to myself. It means a lot to Marty. It means a whole ton to our listeners. So you really have to give us a good answer. Um, And also you have to give us an answer even if you feel like you don't have one. All right. All right. And we can kind of help you if you don't feel like you have a good one. Um, My hopes are very high for this question. I'm just letting you know. I'm very excited. Don't get your hopes up. You're going to be very disappointed. (laughs) This is our question. Who is your favorite hockey team? What is your favorite (laughs) hockey team? Okay, well then let's start this uh, interview off on a bad note. I don't like hockey at all. That's fine, dude. <laughs> but I'm from St. Louis, so I'll go with the Blues. All right, that's fair so enough. That's I fair even enough. knew their name, even though I don't follow it. Now I'm one of those. I really get excited about hockey if the Blues are in the you know deep in the playoffs. Then okay. I'll watch a game or two. Sweet. That makes yeah. sense. That's cool. Don't don't feel too bad though. We had Bruxy Cavey on, and he's from Canada, and he said I don't watch hockey. I was very disappointed <laughs> in Bruxy. <laughs> he was a little. No. Bit, he, he's kind of busy though. That's true. You know? <laughs> he does have like things that he does. That's now, true. I'm, a, I'm assuming Josh that Washington Capitals is your answer. Otherwise, I don't understand your hoodie. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. The Washington Capitals. Okay. I'm a huge Washington oh. Capitals fan. He's and just a really big fan of the Capitol. 
Washington. That's <laughs> oh, it. oh, that, that's all, all right. that the, the hoodie stands for. Man. He loves he loves all the all the phrases and the prayers and the different things that are written on all the different monuments Martin around the county. Hardcore making fun of me. <laughs> I will say the the logo, your mascot is a lot more exciting than the name Capitals. I mean, yeah, like I just never would. Is. I guess. Oh, it's an eagle. I can get that. Yeah, it's an okay. eagle. It's the letter W. And also, uh, oh, if you oh. look at the bottom of it, the Capitol building makes up the bottom of the bird. Wow, that's so more elaborate than I would have guessed. That's yeah, incredible. How, that's it's very good. How come, logo they, design. how come they don't have that prayer written down there? <laughs> 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 well, so, man, Marty's making fun of me because I have like this this bit about like nationalism and blah 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 and like you know. Uh, I was I was I was deducing that some. I can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's being smart, but that's okay. We still love him. He's a Blackhawks fan, so we have to give him some. Okay. Give him some grace. But I'm from uh, I'm from Chicago, so. No, oh, okay. That, bandwagon that, jumper. <laughs> yeah. Man, sweet. So anyway, a little upset. I just get a little upset today. Everyone seems a little flustered. I'll yeah. be honest. A little tense. Yeah. A little tense. <laughs> yeah, just relax. Just chill. Goose farm. That's true. That's true. Maybe here, maybe, maybe jumping into Shane's book will help us all kind of relax a little bit. Drop the tension. I don't know, man. I don't know. (laughs) Move away. Well, man, maybe, maybe the the tension is because this morning uh, I was told that Calvinism is the gospel. And if I don't teach Calvinism, then I'm not preaching the gospel. So I'm officially like screwed, I guess. Oh, yeah, that's a bold statement. Yeah, it's a very bold statement, and we don't have time to talk about it, but that's probably why I'm flustered, you know. <laughs> I get also, it. Also a lack of, you know, sleep. Spending a weekend with uh, high school boys and, um, you know, in a cabin can be tiring. So anyways, Shane, True. you <laughs> wrote and recently put out a, a book called Between Two Trees, Our Transformation from Death to Life. And uh, on the back, the back cover, if you don't mind, I want to read like the, the little sentence there at the top. It says, sure. the problem of Eden is much worse than you thought, but the solution is much better than you could have imagined. And dude, this thing is endorsed by like everybody, <laughs> like everybody, you know, all, all across the, the Christian spectrum. It's really cool. I mean, like Scott McKnight, Richard Rohr, Kyle Eidemann, uh, Michael Gorman, um, like so many people, it's all over the place. It's awesome. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, and so I'm excited to, to talk to you about it. Yeah. And so I guess for starters, uh, why, why did you write this book? Like who, who did you write it for and, and why'd you write it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Actually, um, in the introduction, I talk about it a little bit where I, I actually, I felt terrible for my publisher because I sent him a proposal on on this book of how to read the book of Revelation. And they're like, yeah, we love it. And then I sit down and start writing it. And and about 80 percent of the way through, I I contact him. I was like, dude, that's the book I sold you is not the one I wrote. Do you still want it? (laughs) Uh, Because it turned into a book on how the book of Revelation or how the Bible reads us. Um, and initially, um, truth, like all where I was originally writing, it wasn't for anybody but myself. And that's not a, that's not a selfish, arrogant thing. It's more of, um, as I was wrestling with my story and how it collides with my theology, I was having questions 
that frankly, if I wasn't able to answer them, I didn't know if I was going to be able to continue to be a Christian. So for me, it was it was a an, an intense three to four years of wrestling that ended up becoming a book that um, that that I think at this point really who it who it seems to be connecting with um, is people that are that are honest about their brokenness, mm-hmm. that they're they're honest about the struggle of this world between two trees, both their theological questions, but also the questions that that are really birthed from their own wounds. Um, and so that that seems to be where it's really connecting at this point, from abuse victims uh, to de- people that have struggled with racism, uh, both done to them or from them, even people wrestling with you know sexual orientation. The book the book is wrestling with the theology that all of those things are really uh, they really emerge from. Uh, that a lot of the times we think our stories and our wounds are disconnected from from the theology in the Bible, but for me they're they're hand in hand. They have to be. Otherwise, I think that um, that this Christian thing would be a total joke if it's not impacting all that we are. So, oh man, absolutely, yeah, that's so good. That um, you know, I was I was just talking to my students about exactly that. How a lot of times, um, you know, Christianity has just become a transactional relation uh, religion rather than transformational. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Jesus doesn't call us to just ask him into our our hearts, but Jesus calls us mm-hmm. to follow him, and so that impacts your life you know, completely in all areas. Um, yeah, so that's really cool how that connects. That's awesome. Yeah, and I, and I think that you even, you summarize that wonderfully. And that's that's a part of was my frustration uh, it is I'm going, I have this wound. And in chapter seven, I talk in detail about whenever I was a child and I was molested for the first time when I was six. And I'm like, I have this wound. And if the gospel is not going to address this, you know, if all of my theology degrees don't actually deal with this part of who I am, then, then this is a game that we're playing. It's not something that, you know, frankly, I was, I got to a point where I was like, just telling me I'm no longer guilty of an indiscretion and that I'm just innocent. I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying there has to be more than that. Mm, absolutely. Um, and so that's where, where even the, the, the sentence that you wrote, I came to the conclusion, oh, the, what, what happened in Genesis 3 is way worse than just breaking a rule. Yeah. And frankly, the solution to Genesis 3 is way better than just going to heaven or being innocent. It's it's far more pervasive on both ends. Yeah. No, that's so good, man. I And I really appreciate it, too, like um, like the the openness that, uh, you know, you spoke about and, and told your story um, in your book. I'm always a huge fan when, when people take uh, their story and then they use it, um, you know, to, to shine light and, and um, you know, help others. I always think that's, you know, a, a super cool thing. So thank you for, you know, your openness. I think that takes a lot of bravery uh, to speak about things like that. So thank you. Hey, my pleasure. I, it's funny. I did have a, I did have a radio host uh, ask me recently. He was like, are you a little worried now that your story's out there? Like that you're going to be, you know, catching some people, you know, shooting some arrow. He used some weird metaphor. I didn't even really understand it. It was like, cause you're the last, you know, clay shoot in the, in the skeet or something like that. I was like, what are you saying? I was like, are you saying people are going to shoot at me? And yeah, like, he goes, well, he's like, I'm just saying, you just kind of put yourself out there. You know, are you afraid of that? And I was like, dude, it hurt way worse keeping it in the dark. Mm. So I'm not really sure that anybody else can do anything else besides the pain of, of keeping it hidden. Sure. Um, but, you should have told him what Paul had to say about that. You know, <laughs> if we live in the light as he is in the light, then we will have fellowship with one another. Yeah. <laughs> and he would have been like, I don't understand your metaphor. I'd be like, well, I don't understand yours either. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Just in this metaphor war at that yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> Sweet. 
Yeah, and too, also, like, you tied in, and you mentioned it earlier, but you also tied in, like, uh, this ex- um, experience with, like, uh, racism as well. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just talk, like, briefly real quick how that um, also impacted the, the writing of this book, and then we'll kind of jump into to some things. Absolutely. No, my whenever my wife and I were dating, we knew we wanted to one day um, to adopt, and we were also both committed to uh, having a biracial family. Uh, we just feel like that this is, well, especially as a, re- I'm a revelation scholar and like John beats it into my head that heaven is every tribe, tongue, you know, people and nation. And, uh, you know, that, that, that race is actually a celebration of the creativity of who God is. And that's, that's even one of the reasons why I'm like, no, we're not, we don't need to be colorblind in order to be unity unified because colorblindness eradicates the beauty of our skin. Um, and so having, we, we adopted, uh, our fourth child and, and, and he is, uh, he's from St. Vincent from the Caribbean. Uh, so he's Vincentian American, but, but he has black skin. And whenever, whenever you talk about racism in theory, it's one thing, but whenever you're a dad of a child that is, is having, um, these different, you know, things said to him and about him because of his skin, it changes the whole heart behind my theology, uh, because now it doesn't just impact something I believe; it impacts somebody that is my son, uh, that belongs to my family. And so, so even wrestling with the idea of in the Bible how we are adopted children of God took took on a whole different level. Uh, but within my own family, whenever my wife and I decided to to um, to adopt, we we even saw some latent racism that was in my family emerge in a way we we didn't even realize was there. Um, and so having conf- – I talk about in chapter five, I think it is uh, a confrontation with my grandmother uh, that I didn't know how it was going to go. But I was fully prepared to say if she's not going to accept my son, then this might be the last time I get to interact with her, which was heartbreaking. Mm. Uh, but by God's grace, uh, even uh, – my grandmother is the one that taught me the N-word for the first time whenever I was four Mm. Um, but I, and I wasn't even able to put this picture in the book because the resolution wasn't high enough. Uh, but the way that that story ends, it actually had the picture was, um, my, my son that's adopted and my grandmother touching fingers, hmm. uh, because in, in her, in our prayers and in her interaction with, um, with my son, there, there was healing that happened that frankly went back to wounds from her childhood living in the South. Um, and the racism that's there. And for me, I'm like, that's the gospel. Absolutely. The gospel exposes our wounds, but that's actually the entry point to the healing of them. And so even race in our families become an issue that we're, we're trying to navigate uh, for the sake of my son and frankly, for the sake of um, our, our nation that seems to love to divide over things and race is one of them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. My, so my students make fun of me for this. Um, but I, so I'm like, I'm an emotional person. I cry. Like I'm, I'll just start crying for no reason. Like be preaching and start crying. And like when I genuinely, when I read that conclusion to that story, um, like I was crying. <laughs> like it was yeah. just so powerful, man. It was so good. Um, well, thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you again for sharing that. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's fun because, um, well, it's fun, but it's also a, a weird because I was, uh, you know, telling this church the other day, I said, it's a little strange having a book like this come out because in a sense, it feels like it's like my spiritual journal from the last six, seven years. And sure. a lot of the issues that I'm even bringing up, it's I'm not bringing them up just because they're hot issues in society. It's because right. it's where it's happening in my life right now. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, it's really interesting, too, because I think a lot of times I think 
I think the narrative surrounding racism has been just more divisive, along, even along the lines of saying, you know, well, you're you're white, so you couldn't possibly understand what it means to be me. Yeah. But then someone in your shoes can say, well, I personally can't, but as a dad, I can. Mm. Yeah. And so actually, actually, you're wrong. I, I do understand what that means in, in many ways. So I guess my question would be, I know this isn't about racism in general, sure. but my, my, my question for you would be, um, have you found that you personally have experienced a, a sort of racism or a sort of segregation or a sort of like, you know, just even just a condemnation because of that choice to uh, to adopt your son, um, or is it is yeah. it more geared towards him and not really geared towards you? Or like, how does what does that look like? Yeah, it it, it definitely we have, um, and I and I understand. Uh, and frankly, the, the racism that my wife and I have experienced, it, it isn't limited to any race that has said stuff to us. <laughs> uh, so it's not like we have, you know, uh, you know, like like black parents or something upset that we uh, it's been from both both sides. And um, and I understand that now. Now, truthfully, I'm going now you you have no idea the story of my son and the situation he was in. And I'm going and listen, if you're if you're upset that, that he is black, then then I've got also 20 other people that you could adopt if you're upset about them going to a home that doesn't, you know, I'm going like so. So by all means, like uh, my bottom line is this. God rescued me from a broken situation. And he calls us to do that, not just theoretically or even spiritually, but physically. Mm-hmm. And the church, this is where I I, I I get bored with a lot of, I know you're in Washington, D.C., Josh, <laughs> but I, I get bored with a lot of the political issues that find their way into the church because I'm like, a lot of these issues aren't political. A lot of these tr- issues are just simply Christian. Straight up. And and, and as, a, as a historian, I'm going, the early church was amazing at being focusing on children and quote unquote being pro-life, but not just pro-life for what's in the womb, pro-life for every person from the womb all the way to the moment that they die. Yeah. And, and, um, and there was, there was a crisis of exposure. I mean, you can read this in Rodney Stark's book, the rise of Christianity, uh, a crisis of exposure where children, if they weren't being aborted, there was abortions happening in the first century, but if they weren't being aborted, they were just birthed and then set out into the, uh, to the uh, gutters and matter of fact, uh, one of the I think it was Jerome said that um, that in the nights in, in the city of Rome, you can hear children crying because they're being exposed to the elements. That's the way of, of getting rid of the baby. And children and Christians would actually walk through the city of Rome and just pick up the children out of the gutters. I'm like, we've been this because this is what God did to us. Yeah. So so for me, I'm going like, listen, I understand. I understand the race issues and I am under no misconceptions that my my sons growing up will be different than my own but but at the same time I'm going but this the heart of christianity is empathy and empathy to me is not is different than sympathy sympathy says i hear your emotion and it makes i feel bad with you empathy says i'm emptying myself of myself and viewing the world through your eyes and like that that that's what that's what christ did to us when he became flesh and so for me, it's it's like, listen, I don't own your story, but it doesn't mean that I can't empty myself of myself and look at the world through your eyes. Because what I do understand is brokenness and pain, uh, but it just everybody's brokenness and pain is unique to them. Mm-hmm. So if we at least can can unite on the fact that we're all wounded and hurt, <laughs> then hopefully we can understand somewhat of what each of us are going through enough to help each other. 
Yeah. I mean, but yes, we've experienced racism. My son is at school and over the last two to three weeks, we've been having some pretty tough conversations with him about comments that kids have been saying to him at, at his school. And as a dad, it reminds me of whenever my daughter was called fat for the first time. Um, yeah. It's a wound that, 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 that will pierce their heart. And as their dad, I have to fight for their heart. And every one of my kids, I fight for their heart uniquely, the same way God does with us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's actually really, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, I realize it's a, it's a dichotomy, but it's tragically beautiful. The story of the Christians walking the streets and picking the babies up out of the gutter, that metaphor of what God did to us and what God has done for us, because it's, you know, if you really think about life, as far as where you were before you chose God or before God chose you, depending on if you're Calvin, Josh, or whether you're, whether you're Armenian, um, but like the idea there is just, I mean, I can't, I personally, that, that just, that stirs me up. I think thinking about that and just saying like, that is exactly what God did for me. Yeah. And so of course these first century Christians, some of whom had, you know, some of whom might've even been primary sources on the life of Jesus to be able then to walk the streets and say, well, of course I'll do that. I mean, like it makes, yeah. it makes perfect sense to them to do, to do that. Um, so I don't know. That's just that's like I said, tragically beautiful. That that like yeah. that's you know there that I just think of that testimony at a Sunday morning church service. Like you know, well I was you know I was in I was like physically in the gutter, not just metaphorically mm-hmm. but physically. And yep. you know this couple, so and so, John and James and their their spouses, you know, were walking the streets and picked me up, yep. and uh, and they raised me, and now this is who I am. I mean that's just. I mean that's 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 really the heart of every testimony, anyhow. Exactly. Except they had actual like <laughs> this was actually. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody out there that had a similar story, but I guess that that was yeah. just beautiful. That. Absolutely. And for me, the, the 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 big part of what you just said there that's that that strikes my heart is this: this isn't about justice theories or whether or not we should be doing. It's an it's an outworking of our identity in Christ. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. natural fruit. It should be as normal as breathing. These aren't. These aren't issues we get to go around and debate any more than we get to debate whether or not sin sin is a is a wound that is separating us from God. Like <laughs> it, it's not theoretical. It's we can see this played out in the negative sense, but then in the positive sense, the early Christians were doing this because it's just a natural outworking working of worshiping a crucified king. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did we did a conversation recently with a, a gentleman named Terrence Lester who wrote a book called I See You. Um, and it's mm. about people experiencing homelessness. And we had like a very similar conversation wow. about this exactly because people often throw at him this idea like, oh, you're just propagating a social justice gospel. <laughs> and he was like, I, I can't separate the two. I don't see where, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. Our gospel has always been social, even if it wasn't a social gospel. So Absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, sweet. Well, I guess, <clears throat> so with your with your book, um, and I mean, we just touched on a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, range of things that you covered, but yeah. in, in your book, you kind of broke it up. Um, well, first off the, the title of the book between two, two trees is just beautiful. Like I've hardcore stole that line from you and I've thrown <laughs> it into like my messages with students. Um, and like, they love it. They're like, man, that's so good. I'm like, yeah, I didn't come up with awesome. it. Uh, <laughs> I just, 
I just have to ask because I keep thinking about it, and it, and if I don't ask and get it off my mind, I'll I, I won't be able to stop. I don't know why, but I think I know where you're going with this. Did, but go ahead. Did you co-write the book with Zach Galifianakis? That's exactly <laughs> the two, two friends. <laughs> because the moment the book came out, like five of my friends are sending me memes with me sitting there with Zach Galifianakis between two ferns. I just had to ask. No, I'm, I'm, that title from me, man. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm, glad, I'm glad we were tracking. That's, <laughs> that's so great. That's perfect. That's no, that's so great. I actually, I did not think of that until just now, but that's so funny. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So, um, but you talk, so you talk about these two trees, um, and, um, you kind of break your book into four sections, section one, which is the tree of death, what happened in the garden of Eden. And again, you say it's worse than, than we think. And in section two, you do the shadow of the tree of death. You know, what's the impact of the garden of Eden for today? Uh, section three, the tree between the trees, uh, which is really cool. I thought that was a, a really creative thing. Uh, what, you know, what is God's solution to the garden of Eden, uh, that will return us to Revelations Eden. And then finally, section four, the light of the tree of life. How does God's solution illuminate and navigate life uh, for us between two trees? So basically, I had just some touch points in, in each one of those sections that I was, you know, wanted to talk about. Um, but just uh, for starters, um, for maybe people who aren't tracking or are still confused by the title, uh, between two trees, what what trees are you talking about? The trees in my backyard or like what's going right. on? Or the ferns that the are ferns, sitting on our Yeah, between the Zach two trees on either side of him in his office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, uh, it, it, it's this observation uh, that that I made. I'm, again, like a lot of my scholarly work is done in the book of Revelation. Like that's what I did my PhD on and my master's, and I've written a couple of other books on that. And uh, and, and it's this observation that um, you get to Revelation 22, and I'm like, well, we're back at we're at the end of the Bible, but we're back at the place where we began the Bible. Mm. Uh, we're in a garden. Uh, you're in the presence of God, and then in Revelation 22, one through three, it says we're looking at the tree of life. And so, so it, it's a fascinating thing where I say like, okay, the Bible ends the way it begins, but, but the problem is uh, that we live life between these two trees. Mm-hmm. We don't live life under the tree of life in the New Jerusalem. We don't live life under the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. We live life between two trees, and between two trees, uh, life is brutal. Life is hard, and it's filled with wounds. And so kind of the book begins by asking the question, how do we even navigate this world that's caught between these two trees of life? Mm. Sweet. Awesome. Thank you. And then um, so within your first section, which is, um, again, uh, you know, like the the idea of what happened in the Garden of Eden, um, you have a quote on, on page 26 of your book where it says that our inability to lucidly define sin affects our picture of God our picture of Satan, our perception of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And then basically you go on to say that, uh, for if we truly understand the definition of sin, we'll realize that the result is worse than just hell and demands far more than a rescue that sweeps us up to heaven in the sky by and by. And then you said that, um, the, the, you know, before we can understand sin, we have to understand uh, this word union. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about uh, this word union and, and why that's important to understanding sin. Yeah, I, uh, this actually, let, let me kind of even, uh, I'll take a step back and kind okay. of tell you the thought process of how I even came to that conclusion. Sure, sure. Um, it, it actually came where I was, I was wrestling with a uh, revelation 20, uh, where, you know, you have the binding of Satan and all, I'm not going to get into that, but, um, but in 2011 through 15, you see the great white throne judgment. 
And there was this statement that always bothered me where it said, and God, it got, it's like where God has the books open and it's the scene of judgment. But then into the lake of fire, he casts Hades and death. And I sat there and, I, and, and what always bothered me is I was like, no, wait a minute. Now, Hades, that would have made sense to the Greek world because they actually, Hades was an actual deity to them. I mean, it was, you know, the god of the underworld. It was mm. uh, one of Zeus's brothers and Poseidon. And so they would have understood that personification. But I was like, but death, we always think abstractly. But in that moment, death is being personified. So if we personify death, and Paul does this, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Like he's mm-hmm. singing an ode to a person. If death is personified, then maybe when we, we're interacting with death, it's more than just an event. What if it was a person? And now I'm using this metaphorically because I'm not, I'm not going to get into the philosophical ontology of death as a person. Sure. But the Bible metaphorically engages death personified. Well, if I personify death, then my relationship with death will be comparable to our relationship with each other, the way we're interacting now, or even my wife. And so then whenever I'm asking the question of what really happened in Eden, I, there's, a, there's a verse that leads from Genesis 2 into Genesis 3, from the two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 to the, to the fall, to where sin enters the world in Genesis 3. And the, the, the verse is chapter 2, verse 24. It says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will become one flesh with his wife. Mm-hmm. And I asked the question, I was like, well, now why is it that that's the transitional verse? Uh, you know, there's a verse 25 right after it, but it's a hinge verse leading right into chapter 3. And the answer is because it's actually reminding us that we were made for union. We were made to become one with another. And we see this enacted every day with, you know, you know, you, you know, we're taking drinks uh, whenever our voices, you know, the puberty is getting to us because we can't, you know, <laughs> so we, we take a drink. But when we do, we become that, that us and that water, whatever is in the drink, we become one to the point where we cannot tear them away. Mm-hmm. Um, if you tried to throw it up, it would you would not be the same and it would not be the same. It's actually damaging both and neither one are the same anymore. Sure. And so I'm, the concept then is why introduce union of husband and wife right before Genesis 3? Because in the moment where we ingest the fruit, where Adam and Eve ingest the fruit, fruit, we became one flesh with death. So now if I piece all together, I've just said, if death is personified, we can become one flesh with death in the same way that I become one flesh with my wife. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about complete union. We are one. We think alike. You know, this is where they'll talk about, you know, these, oh, man, they've been married for 50 years. They're starting to even look alike, you <laughs> yeah, know, and yeah. like, there's a union that, that, that divorce even illustrates whenever you experience a divorce in your family. Um, it doesn't just affect you because you've actually become one with another person and that union has impacts that, that, that go to not just your children, but your community, your church, and even even at, especially in small towns, even in your whole town. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the idea is if we understand what union is and how it functions in the everyday, we might understand what sin is. And my definition of sin is becoming one flesh with death. Yeah, that, mm. man, like that, that idea like, like stood out to me so strongly. Like, seriously, dude, as soon as you started talking about that, and I think it's, you know, right in there in chapter two, as soon as you started talking as sin and like the human condition as becoming one flesh with death, like I was hooked and I was like, man, that's crazy. Like, that's the best 
I've never heard anything like said so well, like explained so well. That just clicked with me personally. And uh, I immediately I was like, man, I want to talk to this guy. I emailed you right <laughs> then and there. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> before I even finish things, dude. I, that's so well, crazy. And, and for me, why, why what you just even said was so helpful for, for my understanding of what happened is it starts to explain why it is that, you know, the high schoolers are whenever you start talking about, you know, reading or praying, you know, reading the Bible or praying the holy living, mm-hmm. it just does not sound fun. It doesn't even sound appealing. It's because we are one flesh with death and we naturally speak the grammar of death and we think like death. And mm-hmm. and this is why Paul talks about in Romans 12 that that we need to renew our minds or even the word repentance is metanoia, renewing the way that we think mm-hmm. uh, because we actually are disciplined in the grammar and the thought processes of death. So yeah. death makes more sense as a solution to our problems than life does. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I think oftentimes too, when we find um, that we have become unified with something very well. So, I mean, using marriage as an example, like you did, you know, whenever there's a disconnect there, it's sort of one of those things that you you kind of can sense and you can feel almost um, without someone saying, I'm feeling disconnected from you because, mm-hmm. um, you know, my wife and I, one of our favorite books that we've read together is, is Chapman's Five Love Languages. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember when we first read that together, and we learned sort of like the the quote unquote ways to love each other best mm-hmm. um, as we would feel disconnected from those. If I wasn't doing that for her or she wasn't doing that for me, um, we would begin to feel disunified. Yeah. And there'd be there would be days or ununified maybe is the actual word. Sure. Um, but uh, either one. But there, there would be days that would go by and we'd be going about the status quo. And then some one of us would say, hey, something's not right. And then we would look back and we would realize that it was because we weren't intentionally going after that. And I think and I think that happens when you've become one flesh with something. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes easy to, uh, as human nature gets involved and busyness and schedules get involved, it becomes easy to move away from that. Um, so I, I guess my question yeah. for you w- with that statement, it's not just a statement. I promise I have a question. Uh, <laughs> but I also sometimes make long statements before That's I all right. Um, and it may be simple. It may not be simple. Uh, or you may say, I don't know. And that's fine. Um, what is the way that we can begin to experience that feeling, but with death instead of with the things that God wants us to be unified with? Uh, can you, can you re- not, not repeat the question, but can you, uh, just maybe say it a different way so I can. Yeah. Yeah. So as, as we, as we seek you, as we, as we seek unification with the things that God wants us to be unified with. Mm-hmm. But we're, we are also, because of that, because of what happened in the garden and because of life, because of death, because of what Satan wants to do, I think oftentimes we find that we are, we, we sometimes can become unified with those things that God doesn't want us to be unified yeah, with. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Unified with, instead of being unified with our wife, for it. So I, yeah. I'm thinking of divorce. I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who experience infidelity in their marriage, those types yeah. of things. You know, so, but I mean, those are small, mic- that's sort of micro. I, I'm thinking yeah. more macro. How can we, how can we either resist the urge or go away from completely if it's possible? Besides, obviously, Jesus, you know, <laughs> that's the answer. Yeah. Sure. You know, like, what, what's, what are the ways that we can become unified or disunified with death? Yeah. Completely or in full or how does that look? 
Oh, absolutely. And um, and th- this is where in I believe it's chapter ten, maybe chapter ten and eleven, uh, where I start talking about the the light of the tree of life, or kind mm-hmm. of how in that fourth section, yep. uh, where where I talk about it's uh, you, you said Jesus is the answer, and and his name is the answer, but we also need to look at his methodology. Yeah. Um, so for me, Philippians two, it's funny because I have my watch and it's been dead for a long time, but I always wear a watch and I feel weird without one. But I have it. I have it set to two o five because you know this. I should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Uh, Philippians two five. Mm. Uh, but the mi- mindset is not just an attitude. Mindset is the logical processing through which we come to conclusions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, but but and whenever he then moves into that hymn and and two and Philippians two six uh, and following, it has this word this this word kenosis this mm-hmm. emptying, mm-hmm. Uh, which reminds me of what Jesus tells me. You know, if anybody wants to follow me, he must deny himself and emptying. And so my, I have this whole chapter in there where I talk about how as Protestants we need to learn to be more like Mary, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. be, who who apparently was so empty of herself that she was able to contain in her womb the word of God. Mm-hmm. And 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 the the and therefore you kind of see this canonic. I even think, and I don't I don't think I bring this up in the book, but I even think that God uh, God creation is a is God emptying Himself. Mm-hmm. That we are like mm-hmm. we weren't. Whenever we talk about creation out of nothing, God is no thing. But we were created out of Him, <laughs> and so so creation is an emptying of Himself, and He is infinitely imp- emptying Himself, which is why. He sustains our existence, our being, because all that this moment is, is a manifestation of God emptying himself. That's all that it is. Mm-hmm. And then when Christ comes, and, the, and where I even get that is Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, First uh, John one eighteen says that, that the Son exegetes the Father. He pulls the meaning out of who the Father is. And when I yeah. see Philippians 2 of Christ emptying himself, I know that's who the Father is. And I also know that's what Mary did. Mm-hmm. So the first step for us, us is understanding we need to empty ourselves, which is something death never does. Right. Death doesn't <laughs> empty itself. It tries to consume everyone else. And yeah. so it's this antithetical movement, but that is the entry point. And so, in matter of fact, I think I say at the end of chapter 10, I need to empty myself of myself because I don't know who I am. Mm-hmm. Even even in my even in my lack of confidence, I or in my my insecurities, I need to my, empty myself of those because those blind me to who God sees me. Mm-hmm. And if I can't see how He sees me, I won't know how to ultimately even unite with Him because I was created in His image. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's so beautiful. The, the emptying of ourselves. I mean, that's something that we can do regularly. Like in relationship and communion with others. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think we, as, as you were talking about earlier, you know, the the babies in the gutter. I mean, that was them emptying themselves when they would pick the baby up and know, like, hey, this isn't just you know a couple years commitment. Like, this could be forever. You know, mm-hmm. you know, well, it will be forever. You know, this, you know, for this this child's life. Um, and so, but but also just you know to connect that to the the marriage you know analogy, the idea of saying. My wife's love language is acts of service, and I hate doing acts of service. Right. Uh, well, I mean, and I hate doing her brand. I guess is what I, I understand. Say. She, Absolutely. She, she loves the dishes, help you know, you know those types of things, and I, I just, it's just not my thing. <laughs> it's an emptying of self, and I know that yep. seems really like that seems really like not 
smart. That's not like a, like, oh, uh, that's a really scholarly observation, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. But the idea of emptying myself by doing the dishes for my wife, mm-hmm. that that shows a deeper and higher brand of love, yeah. I think, in my wife's eyes. And I think that kind of goes along those same lines. And I, and I have to empty myself and, and it hurts a little bit. <laughs> and it, and yep. I have to, I have to, you know, humble myself and say like, yeah, I don't like doing this, but you know, that's too bad. Like that's a part yes. of love. That's a part of life. And and the, the best part about that is, is that Jesus never said, oh, I really hate, you know, emptying myself out. <laughs> <laughs> That would you know, have been like, a major I, bummer for all of us. Yeah, right. yeah. but I mean, I mean, when when he was in the garden, he said, yeah. "You know, take this cup from me." But it wasn't like, "Oh man, like I really don't want to have to do this." It was more yeah. so like, you know, like the human side of me says no. You know, the the you know the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak mentality. Yeah, and and not a like, oh my, like I know this is going to be hard. Mm-hmm. That's my mind, my human side. But the God side of me is like, no, this has this has to happen, and I know this is going to be, uh, and I'm going to empty myself for all these people. So uh, that's just really cool. I, I like that. And, and it, let me let me even just build on what you just said, because in the book, I, I what, what I mean also by empty of ourselves is is this is where I say you need to bring out all of your wounds too. Mm. Like emptying of yourself is not also just putting yourself down. It's actually taking your wounds and showing them to everyone right. the way Christ did for – if you can see in my office, I have a, I have a painting. It's a Caravaggio painting. Oh, nice. It's called, it's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. Um, and, and it actually has Jesus with – he's holding open the side of his, of his robe where the spear went into his side. And he's guiding Thomas's finger into the wound. Yeah. So, so that that's also emptying of self. Like we, and this is where I, I get a little frustrated with Christians because a lot of times we talk about Maybe. emptying ourselves, but we don't. Yeah. Uh, but we don't even know who we are yeah. as individuals. Like, like, and so we think that things like humility is a divine depression. If I put myself down, that's holy. No, right, right. that's actually not humility. That's depression. <laughs> like, like humility is saying, this is who I am exactly. Not too high, not too low. This is exactly who God made me. But the only way you can come to that understanding of yourself is if you pull all that is in the recesses of yourself out into the open for your community and for yourself to, to, to dissect, to, to wrestle with. Um, and this is why my my story of being molested is a sin. It's actually, uh, if you're a numerology person like I am from the Book of Revelation, <laughs> I intentionally had chapter seven be where my story was because seven in in um, in the Jewish culture is a number of completion, usually attached to creation. But it was a, but for me, my story was attached to old creation, and eight was a number of resurrection for the for the Christians, and that's mm-hmm. why chapter eight's central focus in the book is on the resurrection, and mm-hmm. I talk about how Christ restores my story in chapter eight. But 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 the, but I have to pull everything of that I am out in order for me to truly understand how to empty myself. But but we entrust the darkness mm-hmm. with uh, mm-hmm. with things that only the light can handle. So we hide our wounds, we hide our stories, we hide our insecurities, we hide our flaws, and we also hide what we're good at as Christians. We apologize whenever somebody's like, oh, you're, you know, you're a good speaker. And we're like, no, I'm not. It's all God. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's true. But why don't you just say thanks? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that night go to God and say, thank you for giving me this gift that's helping other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But 
I truly think, and I, and then I'll, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll stop my monologue. And no, you're, you can, good. you're good. You can take this forever. You think that your listeners will benefit most. <laughs> I, I think we're messing up uh, the first greatest commandment because we don't understand the second greatest commandment. Uh, the first greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says in, the, in Matthew's gospel, he says, the second is like the first. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. If you don't know yourself and you don't love yourself, you won't be able to love your neighbor. And you also won't be able to give all that you are to God because mm-hmm. you're hiding half of it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so for I, me, emptying myself has a ton to do with our stories we don't talk about. Yeah. I, just real quick, Josh. So the, the, one of the things that I was thinking of as you were talking earlier and then just now, too, uh, I remember reading something in seminary about that humility aspect and you know, there's all there's all these people that will say like, oh, you know, Moses had a stutter and all these things, and it, there's actually not like any evidence that he had a stutter. <laughs> right. Just he, he said, I'm a, I'm I'm not a good speaker. Yeah. But then I remember my professor at Gordon Conwell, uh, uh, Carol Kaminsky, said that there's no evidence for anything like that. It just simply was the idea that he was he was trying to be humble. And be like, oh, no, not me, God. But like, you know, wanting to like lift himself up at the same time. Like, yeah, I'm a good speaker. And, yeah. I, and I, oh, I just hope I say the right things. He, she said, oh, I don't know if this is like a scholarly term, but she said it's almost this like Jewish piety of like, oh, no, certainly not me. Uh-huh. Knowing that people know you're good at it and know you're going to select it. So kind of like putting yourself down to almost like look like, you know, fishing for compliments. Like, you know, it's just like, like people feel like, what are you talking about? You're a bad speaker. Like you're a fantastic speaker. Oh, yeah. certainly not me. Lord. But like, right. So as you're talking about, like we do that. Uh, and as a performer, you know, I'm a, a worship pastor, but I also, you know, perform on the outside too. I remember one of the best things I was ever told was just say, thank you. Yeah. When someone says, hey, that was a great performance, don't say, oh, yeah, thanks, but I messed up the second song and I had yeah. this one. Don't say any of that. Just say yeah. thank you. And in church regularly, when people say, oh, it's all the Lord, it's like, well, yes, that's true. But like people recognize that you ha- or people recognize yeah. you have a gifting and it, exactly. to throw that away and, and to say, oh, it's all the Lord. You're essentially telling this person, don't give me compliments. That's not holy. Right. And you just simply are recognizing by by saying you are good at this or you're good at that, you know, many of them probably are already in a place where they know that God has given you that gifting and they're just yeah. simply wanting to give glory to God by telling you Absolutely. thank you or you're, you're no. great at this. So, no, yeah. I think you're totally right. And a lot of a lot of people's hearts in saying it's about the Lord, their heart's in the right spot. They want right. to put the spotlight on the Lord. But I'm like, the okay. quickest way to get the spotlight off of you is to say thanks. Right. And, then, <laughs> and then do what uh, Corey Ten Boom once said. She said, I, I take all the compliments I receive in a day. And, and then at nighttime, I pray to the Lord, put them all into a bouquet and hand it to him like flowers. Mm. Yeah, It's like that's, that's how to keep the spotlight off of you and on the Lord is just to say thank you and then thank him for the gift he gave you straight up right (laughs) (laughs) stop stop like you said stop apologizing for the gifts that god gave you yeah and let's just be honest stop fishing for more compliments exactly (laughs) because that's because there's also a pride in that too that like you say oh i mean i messed up because you want someone to be like what do you mean you messed up like i i can't believe it you could never mess up your voice is amazing your guitar playing is so great and (laughs) you're hoping that they continue on that's yeah, why like, you say. Yeah, it's like argue with me. Argue. Yeah, with me. Right, right. <laughs> Come, on. Come on, give me more. And I'm, I mean, I'm a words of affirmation person, so it's such a, it's such a like a logical step for me to take that to say, 
oh, no, I mean, it wasn't that great. And they'd be like, what do you mean? So, but, well, sorry. <laughs> the last thing I'll say about that is, is that I have lots of students on my worship team as well. And what I notice happens is the more, if I do that, they, students tend to take that mentality to like the nth degree. Yeah. And so I once I once had a student say she hadn't sang in a couple of weeks or a couple, it might have even been a month or whatever. And uh, she was on the team and she goes, man, I've just lost my singing voice. I'm just no good. And and you're like, no, that's not true at all. Like, that's not your like, are you are you and everyone else is like, what? Like, do you hear yourself <laughs> like you're amazing? and and she actually was feeling that. Yeah. And so it had it had turned from this. I want compliments to. I'm actually starting to believe this lie about myself. So yes. I think that there's a danger in the example we set yes. in that realm turning into, you know, actually feeling depressed, like you mentioned earlier, actually feeling like I'm not capable. I don't have a gift. And that's just certainly not true. So I don't know. That's, that's a soapbox of mine being worship pastor, being, you know, like be yeah. grateful for the gifts that God has given you. Use them in boldness. Don't be afraid to show people that you've been gifted by the Lord because that blesses and gifts other people and it encourages them to be bold in their giftings. They may not be amazing Absolutely. vocalists, they have gifts that God has gifted them. And so mm. mm-hmm. I could do a whole episode on that. <laughs> Maybe we should, <laughs> I, Marty. I'd listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> are listening to the theology doesn't suck podcast. dude marty no that's people don't want to hear it that way man it has to be it has what? to be more enthusiastic like this do you love theology doesn't suck have you been listening to this show because you truly believe theology doesn't suck the, no dude what dude that's that's like that's it's so nerdy like people are like people don't think that's genuine man that sounds so weird it needs to be something like this it needs to be like you know, hey guys, like, I don't know if you realize, but we have a patron feed and it's, it's so awesome because like you get a lot of really cool stuff and you just like, you just have to give us some yeah, money. Yeah, but we can't just straight up be like, hey, yo, give us your money. Cause that's like, people don't want to do that either. It's disrespectful to our listeners. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Okay. So how about we do something like this? How about we do like, hey guys, it's Josh and Marty okay. from Theology Doesn't Suck podcast and you know here's the thing we love doing this podcast but you know as you probably know it takes a lot of effort and like we've got an awesome guy behind the scenes named matt who does like all of our awesome editing and all that stuff and you know it takes equipment and time and so like you know one of the things that we love about today's day and age is that there could be people out there that love our show so much that you just want to support us and so Josh, we started this awesome patron feed, and like, Josh, how, how can they find it? Like, what, what kind of stuff should they look oh, for? Well, yeah, and then we, we, well, we could tell them then, like, hey, go to patreon.com slash theology doesn't suck, and whereas for as little as $1 a month, right, you could become a patron, uh, and we have some different, you know, we could tell them about the different tiers, you know, where, where some tiers gives you access to a, a Facebook group specifically for patrons that allows you to do things like submit questions to be asked on episodes, uh, submit questions for bonus content, which, hey, bonus content is a part of another tier, some bonus episodes that are, you know, close to the public. So we could tell them those kind of things, right? Yeah, and 
And one of the things we could do, which would be really cool, Josh, is like every once in a while, just because we're really good people, we could like send them stuff either digitally or like through actual mail. That's kind of cool. Like, you know, like I play in a band. So like, what if we come up with a CD and like, we've got a CD and I just want to send it to oh, them yeah. or something, you know, like, you know, like that's another cool idea. So like, you know, maybe that could be like some of the higher tiers. So like they would, you know, they would never know that something cool was coming, but then like, Hey, surprise, this is coming to you. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. And like, we could say like Christmas cards, cute stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That, that'd be great. How about, all right, well Uh, then how about we just tell people that and, uh, yeah, hopefully they go to patreon.com slash theology doesn't suck and, uh, join our, you know, theology doesn't suck community. Josh, I think, I think this is a good way for us to do this. So I think, okay, let's record this and wait, dude, I've been recording this whole time. Oh yeah, me too. All right. How about this? Let's just send this to Matt and, uh, we'll just go with it. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks guys. We love you. Back to the show. So like one thing that um, Shane, you you had mentioned earlier, there was that like this idea that we have a tendency to um, just keep running towards death and darkness, right? And um, later on in your book, you talk about how like death has just become our native language, almost like we're so intertwined. And um, you know, you said that I, I run from my past and numb the stress of my present by running toward things that hurt me, expecting them to comfort me. Running toward death for companionship, yet time and again only receiving abandonment. And then you you have this section in in uh, in the book where you call it uh, pearls of poison, um, and talk about how darkness experiences light as torture and not medicine, yeah. and kind of say that's like this is why we do this. <laughs> and yeah. so you 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 get a really cool um, like explanation of or, or exegesis of this verse from Revelation. Uh, 8, 10 through 11, uh, which reads, And then the third angel sounded his trumpet, and an enormous star fell from the sky, blazing like a lamp. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The star's name is called Wormwood. A third of the water became bitter, and many people died f- from uh, the bitter waters. And you said that worm- Wormwood there is not just some throwaway detail, but you mm-hmm. kind of go into an explanation there. Can you, um, would you mind breaking that down for us a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, yeah, it is not a throwaway detail. Matter of fact, there's a there's a, a in the Greek, it's actually a repetition of the word. The word wormwood literally means bitter, and so when it talks about the star's name is wormwood, and then it turns the water bitter, it's using the same word. Mm. Um, but but the fascinating thing is is that is that wormwood, and I learned this because I went to my uh, my local like a natural healing place because I was <laughs> having stomach issues. Yeah, and she was like, oh, this was. It was hilarious. She was like, you know what you really need? It sounds like you have some, some, you know, parasites maybe in your stomach. Here's some wormwood. I'm like, wormwood. I'm like, that's <laughs> a revelation. Hey, like I'm a revelation guy. And then I started doing more research on it. And I'm like, wormwood, wormwood is an herb. It's a medicinal herb. And, and in a world where clean water in the first century, where clean water wasn't prevalent, parasites in the stomach was something they suffered from a lot that led to sicknesses. So what, what starts to become strange then is in Revelation 8, when wormwood comes and it, and it mixes with the water, it actually should be a healing agent. But these people are so infused with darkness that they engage something that should heal them. And it actually, when they ingest it, it, it becomes poison to them. And, and that's this concept in that chapter where I say we are so accustomed to darkness 
uh, that we've actually begun to fear the light, mm-hmm. uh, which is which I, I talk about how that's so strange because as children, <laughs> we were afraid of the dark, not the light. But the uh-huh. older we get, an inversion occurs where we start to fear the light. And when the light comes near us, uh, we, we experience it as torture, even though the light may be coming to heal us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but and I call this wake up call theology, and and it comes from that was moments of being in the dorms, and my roommate would walk in the room and flip on the light to wake me up, <laughs> and immediately I start to cringe and grab the pillows and pull it over my head, and even if I try to open my eyes, it's blurry and it hurts, <laughs> and it's because for eight hours I've grown so accustomed to darkness that the light's presence actually hurts me, mm-hmm. and I want to extinguish it like an enemy. And that's what I think is happening with that. We become one flesh with death um, because I believe this is answering the question from first John or from John 1, 9 to 11. Also, uh, when love became flesh, why did we kill it? Like that's such, that's such a strange move. And Absolutely. I think the answer is because darkness fears the light. Yeah, I, I mean, that that was like a, a brilliant um, explanation there. And I loved how you broke that down kind of into like three movements and then almost too like um, it kind of ties in like later in on in the book you start uh, talking about this idea of separation and mm-hmm. how oftentimes we look at separation uh, you know we receive separation or distinction of any kind as an enemy to overcome not mm-hmm. as a path to intimacy we, we we confuse separation with rejection distinction with oppression and and the the chapter heading there is you know redeeming separation. And so can you, can you talk about that idea uh, briefly? Yeah, I believe the, the, the chapter before that, I believe, was called uh, Divided We Fall. Yep. And then I think, I think that, that that chapter you're referring to is this, the other heading is, but separate we stand. Exactly. Yep. And, and, um, and, and the idea is this, is that division is the language of the enemy. Uh, you know, this is where I talk a lot about racism and, yep. and talk about, you know, the dividing. But, but, but what I'm not saying is that is that therefore we should the way we unite is by obliterating what makes us distinct what makes us se- have separate accounts or lives or I mean, it's like we were talking about earlier it's like i am under no misconceptions that i am a white parent and my son is a black child and we will have separate experiences of mm-hmm. this nation um, however it's in that separation and those distinctions that intimacy is fostered um, and so what I, what I do in that chapter is I trace God's strategy of bringing us close to him and yet our rejection of his strategy. Mm-hmm. So we, we become separate. We become dis- uh, divided from God uh, whenever we become one flesh with death. What is his strategy? To separate us from the garden as a means to bring us back to him. We then want to eradicate uh, any, any separation or any distinction you know, through the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And what's his strategy? He makes us separate even further as a means to bring us together. Because in chapter 12, he separates out the nation of Israel in order to bless the nations. So it's this constant movement where he's saying, no, separate is actually how we become one. It's the reason why, like I said earlier, I reject colorblindness. Uh, This idea of, oh, no, I'm colorblind. I don't see you you as black or you as white. No, that, that is not the strategy to intimacy. The strategy of the intimacy is to look at what makes us distinct from each other and celebrate it as entry points to union, to intimacy. Mm-hmm. So it's empathy. 
it's mm-hmm. knowing who you are, but being able to empty who you are so you're able to receive another. So for me, separate, we stand is this, I'm going to embrace the strategy of what makes me distinct and what makes me different is ultimately the means through which union is possible. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you um, you continue – sorry, I'm going quickly, but I, I want to hit a man. couple things real quick. That's yeah, great. Um, you know, you continue uh, with that, that thought and idea on, into the next section of your book, The Tree Between Two Trees, uh, the, mm-hmm. you know, the cross of Christ, and you say um, – you know, that regardless of my pain or my perception, God isn't repulsed by death's union. He isn't repelled by the sin done to me or, or by me. He hasn't, uh, he doesn't turn his back on those afflicted with death's death sting. And you say the true tree of life, the cross of Calvary. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you go on to say that, uh, that God never leaves us even in our union with death and our lives as in the cross, what seems like desertion is actually deliverance. What seems like abandonment is actually intimacy. And what seems like a desert is actually a divine oasis brimming with living water. And so I just loved how you, you carried that idea forward um, and kind of made it central within uh, the idea of the tree between two trees, you know, mm-hmm. what Christ did for us uh, on Calvary. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that, that that's where it's the book starts to shift there saying, listen, yeah. this problem's way worse than we thought. The yeah. solution's way more beautiful than we ever dreamed. Uh, but the, that, that first chapter, chapter seven, I'm attacking something that in my own story, I felt I, I felt pretty deeply. Um, I always I grew up in the church, but but mm-hmm. being molested at, as a, at a young age, I, I never really connected to the love of God. Uh, it took me a long time. John three sixteen did very little for me. Um, sure. As a matter of fact, I, I was even telling my wife, I said, I remember Matthew 19 at one point really ticking me off where Jesus says, let the little children come to me. <laughs> and, and my response was, what the heck, man? Yeah. You want me to come to you? Why the heck didn't you come to me? Mm. Like, why didn't you come and protect me? What, what the, Are you just sitting there waiting for me to come to you? And so there's this part of this where I was like, man, if in, if in Christ's darkest moment, on the cross of Calvary, Mark fifteen thirty four, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. If God really abandoned him there, which is what church history has even taught, what I was taught growing up is that's where God left him and turned his back on him. And I was like, if that's who this God is, I have a problem. Because whenever I'm in my darkest moment, I need him to be with me. And so in that chapter, I dive into Psalm 22 and say, the reason why Jesus was singing that psalm was not because of the way it begins, but it's because of the way it ends. Mm-hmm. Because that psalm ends with four words that he's yelling. He has done it. <laughs> and, and in verses 23 and 24, it specifically says, he has not turned his back on the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not abandoned him. He has heard his cry for help. Mm-hmm. And so I actually argue that Jesus was singing that psalm because looks can be deceiving. Sure. We actually, in this world between two trees, or Christ literally hanging between two trees— because that's where I also point out there, it's not an accident that he leaves from the Garden of Gethsemane to a tree between two trees. That's our <laughs> that's our narrative. Yeah. Like I'm like this. The whole Bible is, um, and for me, is pulled together in this metaphor. Uh, but God does not abandon him there. It's actually the place where God is most present because God's not allergic to sin. That's there's this weird reality. It's like, oh God, you know, God gets around sin. He's like, yo, I gotta get out of here. Like, you know, sin can't be near me. It, sin's not that powerful. <laughs> And this is why why, G, why Philippians 2, again, is so instructive. Christ became flesh. That was always the goal. I believe that even if we hadn't jacked up in Genesis 3, 
God would have become flesh because his mm. desire is to be close to us. Sure. However, sure. when he became flesh, he had a mission because we had already united with death. So he honors our choice of becoming one with death by dying himself. But then that's ultimately where the solution starts to come because yeah. he passes not only into death but beyond death and ultimately ascends back to God, which completes the loop that we then get to follow through our own death in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, it's so great. And I love to, in that section where you talked about the, the whole it is finished bit, um, yeah. you kind of did like the Jewish numerology and John, uh, you know, with the, the creation, the seven days and then living in the eighth day. Uh, that was so cool to me. That like blew my mind. <laughs> I thought yeah. that was so neat. So, uh, people, you have to buy the book to go read that part. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, because just, you know, just for sake of time and, and to respect yeah. your time as, as well, Shane, um, I guess because the, the last section of your book, The Light of the Tree of Life, um, talks a lot about uh, the solution as well and kind of living into that. So can you just, um, you know, maybe whatever you think is best or something that you'd be excited about, uh, but in that section, The Light of the Tree of Life, what, um, how would you like to wrap this whole thing up? That's basically what I'm, what I'm asking you. Absolutely. Yeah. In the light of the tree of life, I take about six or six chapters or so yeah. and, and really kind of say, what what is life made up of? Time. So I have a whole chapter on time and how time is reoriented from who your master is. If your master is death, then time is merely a countdown to you no longer living. Mm. But if your master is God, it's merely a measurement of our union with him. Um, this is why John 17 says eternal life is to know God. And yeah. knowing God is ultimately how time then becomes defined. But I also talk about pain and how there is a place for pain in this, but it isn't, pain is not something God inflicts to accomplish something. Mm-hmm. It's ultimately something that, that occurs because of our union with death, Absolutely. but because of Christ will always be repurposed for life. So that last section basically says this, if, the, if, the, uh, if, sin, uh, if sin is union with death, then salvation is union with God. So chapter nine is really kind of this major hinge chapter that leads into both. And it's called sex, a model mm-hmm. of divine union. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I was kind of wondering if my, uh, if my publisher was gonna have a problem with that chapter. <laughs> um, but, but basically the chapter says this, uh, well, it asks two questions and I'll, I'll really focus on the first one. Um, why is it that in every generation Satan goes to great lengths to distort sex? Sure. And why is it that in the Bible God goes to great lengths to keep it pure? Mm. And my answer is because I think they both understand there is a mystery of salvation embedded in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this idea of two becoming one. It, sex is the climax the climax of of physical union. But the problem is when we're talking about union with God, we're not talking about mere physical union. We're talking about something beyond the physical. Um, And so I point out in Revelation 17 through 19 how Revelation 17 is the prostitute. Mm -hmm. And the central central component of a prostitute is sex. But sex birthed out of infidelity, union birthed out of selfishness, union birthed out of uh, using and abusing the other for something that you want. But then in chapter 19 – it's the wedding feast of the Lamb and the Bride of Christ. But yeah. we, we're not allowed to talk about the union of sex in that context because that gets too crass and pagan deities. And I'm like, okay, I'm not talking about having sex with God. I'm not. What I'm talking about is becoming one with God, not birthed out of infidelity, but out of fidelity, not birthed out of selfishness, but out of self-emptying, a coming together as one so that we live and move and have our being 
united with the God that became flesh to begin with. Union. So the whole last half of the book is to say, and if that is true, if union with God is the goal, or as uh, Peter says, partaking in the divine nature yeah. is the goal. What's that word partaking? I always think is interesting because we use that in communion, which is yeah. ingesting the body and the blood of Jesus. Yeah, I loved, your bit. I loved your bit on <laughs> communion in the book. It was so great. Yeah. The, the, then, then the solution is going to affect everything. My wounds, how I view time, how I engage pain. And the goal of us is to simply give God permission to walk through the door that he's knocking. Mm-hmm. And for us to eventually make our way back to the union that was once experienced in the garden, you know, yes. or in, in that, and that to me is, you know, as you talk about that, as you were talking about that just now, I was thinking about that because it's, you know, in my mind anyway, I mean, someone, someone else might, but in my mind, I, when you were talking about union with, with God and I wasn't thinking sex, I was thinking, well, like the garden, like where, sure. yeah. you know, where, when you, when, when, when God is in, when, when Adam and Eve got to walk with God uh, in the cool of the day and they got to experience true unity, true union, but then there was also this like obvious trust that God had given them and had placed in them and had in them. You know, he, he didn't just say, hey, I'm going to come back and visit you because yeah. I have to check up and see how you did. Like, I've, <laughs> I gave you some jobs to do today. I'm going to come back and check in on you later. I'm sort of like this overseer. Yeah. But it was instead like, you know, I'm going to come back later on because I, I, I want to be with you. I want to be in unity with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, no, but the only. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Go I was ahead. just going to say, you're, you're exactly right. What, the mystery of Christ and the Holy Spirit, though, they also build on that picture to describe a unity that is far beyond mere proximity. Yeah. Uh, because whenever Christ, whenever God became flesh, there is an interpenetration of the divine and the human nature that we didn't even know was possible in the Garden of Eden. And then with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I'm like, why is the yeah. Spirit described as not just on me, but inside of me? Yeah. Is because there is a union that I don't think that we I don't think that we understand until we truly understand the depths of the union of death. Yeah. All that death has affected. And if you look around and inside, you're like, holy cow, it's affected a little bit. This is this is Romans five. <laughs> yeah. Like that's all this is. I'm just quoting Romans five. All that death affected, God is affecting through Christ and the Spirit. Mm-hmm. So we will be in a garden with him. But there will be an, an interpenetration of our of of uh, the divine and the human in a way we've never we've never thought was possible. Yeah, there's there's a lyric by by uh, United Pursuit. I'm not sure who wrote it in that in that group, but uh, it's uh, you make my soul alive. You put your love inside. Oh, and it, the world could totally twist that and be like, oh, well, I see what you're trying to say there. But if you think about that divine unity. That we're yeah. talking about here. I mean, that's just such a beautiful lyric. It actually, for me, was a little uncomfortable to sing along with yeah. at first because yeah. it was, you know, because your mind is is pushed by these other thought processes <laughs> and these yep. other these other parts of the world. But then, as you really think about it, I mean, that is exactly what happened. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and and so. frankly, the the early church was a lot more comfortable with the Song of Solomon than we are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we, I think we just have to wrestle with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I just wanted to say one thing quickly, Josh. I know we're trying to get we're trying to wrap up here, but uh, this past year at my church for um, for Easter, our, our theme was Living Hope, mm-hmm. and um, the for Good Friday, two different pastors preached. The, the senior pastor preached on Easter, and then our pastor of discipleship preached it on Good Friday, and he actually used Psalm 22 as his mm-hmm. passage, um, and he just he really kind of had that 
the di- you know, sort of the difference between the living hope that we experience on Easter. Mm-hmm. And so what does that mean on Good Friday? And he, he kind of, he, he's not a big fan of, you know, his name's Johnny. He's not a big fan of like, you know, picking and choosing what parts of scripture you use, sure. you know, essentially cherry picking, obviously. But he said there's parts of Psalm 22 that really don't apply. And so he, there was parts of it that he read, but then he finished with the, for he has done it mm. portion of that. And it, there was a there was a tension in us to want to leave people leaving the room on Good Friday mm-hmm. in anticipation, as so many places yeah. do. This artsy, like, ooh, they're going to leave on Good Friday, but then they're going to come back on Easter. But then also half the people don't come back on Easter anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a separate conversation as well. Um, but we actually left people, we, we had people leave not in sadness of anticipation mm. but in the anticipation of the fact that we get to live with the knowledge of what jesus did on the cross yeah and so why should we pretend like we don't why <laughs> would we put ourselves in that sadness and pretend like we don't know what's going to happen on easter right. but instead we get to know that and yeah. we get to live that so we can live and we can leave the room with the for he has done it mentality yeah. and actually we we kind of purposely set it up with worship at the end with a lot of music at the end. Um, and then we, we left people just you know, stay in the room for as long as you want. And it was probably 45 minutes wow. before the last person kind of trickled out of the room. That's uh, killer. We, we <laughs> ran out of songs that we had prepared. So we had, <laughs> had to like come up with like, you know, so one of this other guy, he started singing a song and I looked over, I'm like, no, we're not going to do that one. <laughs> but I mean, it was just playing free bird and just yeah, whatever. Marty started playing black Sabbath and was like, wait a minute, <laughs> oh, this no. isn't quite right. <laughs> it's unacceptable. It just, to me, it was one of those things that I, I just love that Psalm 22 connection with what happened on the cross. Uh, so much so because I think there's, I think we forget about that. And I think oftentimes we want to, we want to leave ourselves in the place of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But David did that, but he all, he never stayed there. Yeah. And, you know, David would, would write about these terrible things that he was experiencing or just like the, the, this, like the quarrels he was personally having and the wrestling he was having with God. But so many of his Psalms end with, you know, you know, but but you but you, you God are not far away from me. You know, and and, mm-hmm. and 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 that so much of that is just so wonderful to me. So I, I like that connection, uh, and I, and I think it's something we have to think about as Christians. Absolutely, hundred percent agree. Yeah, I mean, it it it's so good too, and I just think like j- the. The way you ended this thing, man, and like the just the promise made on the back, you know, but the solution is much better than you could have ever imagined. Uh, it's just so great, so beautiful, uh, so much bigger, so much better. There's a song that I really like uh, currently called Bigger Than I Thought. Marty, mm-hmm. have you guys played that one? No. I'm not going to suggest it to you because I know you hate when people suggest you music, but <laughs> Bigger Than You Thought by, you know, I'll suggest it to Shane if he doesn't know it. Marty, you might hear it. But, um... <laughs> No, it's just, it's so it's it's awesome, man. And like I remember, um, I read a while back, and I actually I want to go back and reread it. The Universal Christ by Richard Rohr, and mm-hmm. actually uh, a lot of your book helped me um, understand and think about um, that book as well. Have you read mm-hmm. that? I'm I'm like forty pages in, okay, but I have cool. not read it. Yeah, cool. Did you? All the way. I know I know that he endorsed your book. Did you get to have a conversation mm-hmm. with him at all, or is it just email exchange? It was it was via email, okay. yeah, that we had that exchange. But That's- but I, I after 
after I got his his blurb, and then when his book came out and I started reading it, I was like, oh, no wonder you liked what I was saying. Yeah, exactly. There, there are parallels where we are uh, – uh, it's much different styles of writing and much right. different goals. Right. But, but, but the heart of we're, – we're missing something. There's something about the conclusions that we've come to that's actually stunting the growth of the gospel Absolutely. and the way it's impacting all of us and uh, with his book and all of creation. Yeah, no, it's it's so beautiful, man, and just that um, what you're talking about that that union uh, with the divine is just so beautiful, um, and mm-hmm. I think you did a really good job capturing it and laying it out. Um, and it, like, again, it helped me think through uh, some of Richard's work, which you know he's very um, like he thinks out here. I know people can't see me, yeah. but he's very like big picture. Like the dude's yeah. brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. But so yeah, so thank you so much. Uh, for this right, book, thank, thank you. you for putting yourself out there. Thank you for for uh, chatting with us. I know we've went way over yeah. the time that we told you we would, and I appreciate it's all right, man. I appreciate it so much. It's been great, and uh, maybe one day we'll have to talk to you again, uh, yeah. perhaps about the Book of Revelation. Since uh, now we're talking, I'm down. Thing. Yeah, man, that'd be so great. <laughs> that'd be so I'm great. Particularly a fan of um, you know, man. I'm just a really a. Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins kind of guy. <laughs> you may not want to have me back on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Shay might, might slap you slap you through your screen, Marty. <laughs> so I, do, I do actually have friends that are personal friends with some of them. So I, I actually, I enjoy the stories. I enjoy okay. the books. And honestly, um, I hear they're incredibly good men. Sure. Or that, well, at least I know Tim LaHaye passed about a year or so ago, and I... I'm always very quick to say that. Like, listen, I may disagree with you, but I can still sure. uh, oh. respect you and honor you as a man of God. So, yeah, <laughs> without a doubt, it's just it's always so funny to me because when I worked in I worked in a Reformed church for two years, and I remember there was a guy that uh, th- those books were on. We had like a library at the church. Was sure if anyone that wanted to give away books, just put them in this room. So that was <laughs> and a I library. filled all the Reformed books with Richard Rohr. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember he, someone came in and they said. What are these fiction books doing in here? They took them and they threw them all in the garbage, and they're so upset that left behind series. It was the whole series, and I was like, "Oh, actually, I don't have the first one." <laughs> I took it out of the trash. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. No, it's hey, for, for real though. Thank you for having me on. This is this is one of the more delightful podcasts I've been a part of. So, oh, thank good. You for, I'm glad. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys. So, yeah, I've enjoyed talking to you, man. You're so fun. Thank Ooh. you. Yeah, my See? pleasure. All right. Well, so just so people know, where can where can people find you? You know, where yeah. where should they go? Yeah, I I actually uh, have a website, shanejwood.com, and um, and I only give the website uh, because I give away hundreds of hours of lectures for free. Nice. Uh, and and when I mean free, I mean like free. You don't even have to sign up for anything. I here at Ozark, all the classes that I teach, Ozark lets me record them and put them online so that nice uh, churches have access to it. So shanejwood.com. And then, I mean, I do have other like a scripture study community that you sign up and every Monday I have a six to eight minute video that I put out wrestling with the passage. And mm. yeah, I give away the only thing that you can, you can't buy anything on my website. It just like, like with the book, it would point you to Amazon. Right. Because like, I'm, right. like, I'm not, I'm not worrying about the money exchanging. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. So when I say free, it really is free. So <laughs> great. Yeah. People can also find you on Instagram, right? Yep, Instagram, yeah. Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff, and and if you go to my website, all the little links to my oh, Instagram perfect. stuff are up there. So perfect, yeah. perfect, yeah. And also make sure everybody, you know, be sure to buy about twenty copies of Between Two Trees and hand them out to everybody that you know. 
I appreciate that. <laughs> and Zach Galifianakis probably does not endorse many of the things written in the book. No, no. And frankly, he has no idea who I am or what my book is anyway. We're, we're not on the same wavelength. Uh, you have thing. to send him an autographed copy just to see what yeah. happens. Yeah. And sign it, Zach Galifianakis. Yeah. <laughs> to celebrate the what – isn't there a, a movie on Netflix now that just came out called Between Two Trees with him? I think he's got oh, like a, a full movie on it oh, now, not just the uh, two right. stuff. Yeah. I'm going to have to check it out. Something yet. No, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Awesome. awesome, man. Well, thank you again, Shane, so much. Yep. And um, for our listeners, as always, here at Shane, this is my traditional sign-off. Go Caps. Go Blackhawks. Go <laughs> Blackhawks.